check, check. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, it's another episode of the Roycast, the internet's first only succession podcast. My name is Brendan. I am joined, uh, as always, by my co-host Gabby. Good morning, everybody. And uh, we are joined today. Uh, our guest is the editor in chief of Seventh Row, an online film criticism publication and publishing house, publishing an ebook every two months. Their most recent is an ebook on the last year in Canadian cinema called the 2019 Canadian Cinema Yearbook. Uh, she joins us live today. Her name is Alex Heaney. Hello, Alex. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thanks for Our being pleasure. here, Alex. Alex, you also have a, uh, a Shakespeare podcast, is that right? Yeah, I have two podcasts. So I, um, I run a podcast that's just the Seventh Row podcast. Um, that's what it's called. And it's based, it's all film. And then I also have a Shakespeare pod- podcast called 21st Folio, which has kind of been on hi- hiatus for a while, but will be coming back very soon with the Lear episode, actually. Um, and so that's where we look at um, modern um, Shakespeare productions of stage and screen and often filmed theater productions. Now, do you have a favorite production of Lear, since that seems to be the one that everybody wants to talk about in regards to this show? Good question. Probably a big question. Yes, yes, but not one that anyone can see. Do you want one that, like, is possible to find through means? Uh, yeah, but if you have a favorite that you've just seen once, that would be cool to hear about. Okay, well, I guess my favorite that I've seen once that wasn't recorded um, was a production that was done here um, in Toronto um, by the Groundlings Theatre Company, which is kind of basically... the people who are usually in the Stratford season, it's their company in the off season where they do a bit more innovative stuff with Shakespeare. Um, and they did a Lear with a, where Lear was a woman. Um, and it was really, really spooky because like if you've ever had a mother who is kind of narcissistic and had the sort of like passive, have to, had to deal with sort of passive aggressive behavior, it was, um, right on point so um that was really excellent but i guess other other than that um my favorite is probably the sam mendes production with um simon russell beale which is out there it's like not readily available but it is available if you're willing to use means um it was from the (laughs) it was performed in the national theater and actually it was directed by sam mendes and a lot of the ideas he used in that he then kidnapped and put into his um film of specter um right really? down to the yeah yeah like the you know specter has the gouging of the eyeballs out which is definitely from lear and then even some of the ideas of how he staged it um like i don't know i don't want to get too inside baseball for people who don't know anything about the about the play but one of the things that happens in lear is that so lear divides up his kingdom between his two daughters who actually tell him that they love him and his third daughter who actually loves him refuses to say so so she gets nothing divides his kingdom between the two eldest daughters and then decides he's going to move in with each of the eldest daughters and like rotate between living with him between living with each of them and by the way he's also bringing with him a hundred knights and in sam mendes production he actually had i think like 20 people on stage who are representing the knight and then he kind of borrowed that idea of lots of people on stage to sort of be menacing inspector in the villain's lair oh yeah oh that's right that's really cool i hadn't thought about that at all um a lot of the staging inspector is really cool 
Um, I guess we don't want to talk about that movie too much, but like, yeah, <laughs> a lot of great staging and a lot of not so great other things. Um. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, very Lear influenced. He, I think he was editing. I, I'm trying to remember the exact timeline, but I think he did the King Lear play, and then he went straight into making Spectre. So it was like very much on his mind. That's fascinating. Yeah, incredibly morbid movie, and Lear is an incredibly morbid play, of course. Sure is one of those real happy ones with a real happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great family, great, great, great fun time for the whole family, just like Succession. Um, and we're here today to talk about episode eight of the second season, Dundee, and continuing to kind of think about these episodes as you know, sort of counterparts to their season one uh, points in the timeline. So thinking about it in terms of season one, episode eight was Prague, the bachelor party episode that we found to be kind of the narrative and emotional climax of that season where Ken makes the decision to turn inward, that he can't make a life for himself outside of his family, that his family name is always going to define him. So he chooses to join the takeover bid. And that episode, you know, talking about this kind of morbid staging, you know, that episode was framed very much as the descent into this underworld, right, populated by figures like Stewie and Sandy, who are treated as kind of demons and familiar spirits. Um, also, no cold open in either episode. I think, Gabby, you pointed that out. Um, but this episode is also, I think, tinged by just, you know, discussions and themes of death in the afterlife. Everybody keeps joking that the celebration of Logan's career is more like a funeral. Um, Gabby, did you find that there was, you know, similarly kind of a, a similar tone to Prague in this episode? Yeah, at first um, I was really excited when the episode started and I saw that there was going to be no cold open because I had been meaning to talk about um, the fact that Prague was the only episode so far that didn't have a cold open and the um, the the idea that that whole episode um, was sort of this um, kind of visual hellscape and there were the themes of the cage and, um, you know, uh, some of that darker thematic um material was was broached um in in Prague so um I was excited that there was some synchronicity there with the no cold open um and while yeah on a first watch it was hard because Prague was clearly like I said um you know kind of visually hellacious and filmed in this really dark sort of um underworld and this episode is sort of um visually in line with the rest of the episodes of season two and that it's it's bright and it's in you know taking place across various uh you know beautiful luxury settings um but yeah as the episode went on I definitely you know noticed um the references to sort of um death mortality um you know there's the mention for the first time of um, Logan and Ewan's sister Rose, who died unexpectedly, and um, f who, um, you know, clearly experienced some sort of tragedy because later on Ewan brings up the fact that Logan um, blamed himself for that death. We also um, hear about Logan's mother, who died when um, Ewan and Logan were very young, and, and again, they explicitly recall. Um, being of a certain age when they have that discussion, which is something that um, we don't see too much, especially from Logan. 
um, in particular, who is very, very averse to talking about the past. And, and other things drop, too, like um, the idea that, that Logan's celebration is a funeral and uh, Raya saying that um, this is the man who's going to bury us all. Um, the idea of Connor's mother, um, who this is the first reference we get to Connor's mother, but we learn that she was institutionalized in a psychiatric ward. Um, so definitely very dark things being brought up here um, against this sort of lighter backdrop. So yeah, you know, once I rewatch the episode, um, the parallels to Prague, um, you know, sort of crystallized. And I guess there's also Willow's Willow's play with the sand right. on the burial theme. Yes. Oh my god, I didn't even think about yeah. that. <laughs> the poison sand. I just sand. thought of it as you were talking about it. So. Yeah. Um, and a lot of interesting um, dynamics here with the past and Logan's relationship to his past, how he perceives his past, um, how he discusses it in the present day, and we can get into that. Um, but that was very, very fascinating for me. Yeah, it's almost like this, um, you know, it's there are all these ghosts, right? It's almost like a ghost story mm-hmm. where there's all these ghosts yes. of the past that are appearing. And in particular, I think of the way the episode uses the very striking presence of James Cromwell, who looms over Brian Cox as this kind of uh, reaper, or the ghost of you know Christmas, Christmas future, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, visiting his brother, and you know, yeah, there are the ghosts of you know mothers, you know, uh, loved ones that have passed on. And, you know, but in spite of all that morbidity, all these themes of death, this is maybe the funniest episode of the season. Um, How do they do it? (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Prague was was also extremely funny uh, um, and ribald, even as it was visiting this uh, very dark, um, really twisted thematic territory. Um, I mean, Alex, did that... How did that strike you? I mean, did, like, the darkness really come through in this episode for you? Um, Or did that, like, kind of mood of levity, you know, carry the episode for you? Good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I have to say that, so as I was watching, I've been editing this past episode that we just did on King Lear. Um, There was a recent film made by Richard Eyre. So I had Lear on my mind, and and it started out with them declaring their love for their father, and I was like, oh, my God, we're getting Lear again. So I was kind of very much in that mindset of, like, oh, they're going to do it. They're going to do Lear now. Um, So I can't say... So the fact that I guess there's all this talk of him being buried, I didn't really think about it in a... Like, it is kind of morbid, but I didn't really think of it that way because I was like, yeah, that's right. That's how Lear goes. Um, (laughs) So I I can't... I don't know. I'm not... Sorry. Uh, It is... It's, yeah, I guess it didn't feel like it was particularly dark, or at least not any more so than any other episode. I think their family damage is so much darker than the idea of Logan dying, so. Yeah. Yeah, we could also get into, I think, in this episode, the way that, you know, certain characters, like, their their damage or their trauma comes out in ways that aren't necessarily super dark. Sometimes they come out in ways that are just kind of cringy and funny. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I was, I was just thinking of that, uh, you know, that great, um, LP Hartley quote from the go between, you know, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And, you know, we're in a foreign country. Logan's visiting his homeland 
and um, this is this is the part where we bring in the uh, Brian Cox anecdote, which he's told a number of times, which I think is really funny because this clearly really bugs him as it should any actor. Um, but uh, how they they changed Logan's birthplace on him from uh, Canada to Dundee, Scotland, after they had already shot most of the first season, they went back and dubbed in. Uh, dialogue to um, reveal that Logan was from Dundee and when he heard about this I think it was after they had already shot episode 9 he was kind of peeved because <laughs> he's like I've been playing him with this Canadian this like mid-Atlantic accent um, and now I've got to kind of retool this <laughs> I mean one thing that I did find with this episode because it's like the third of multiple travel episodes um, especially given that you know everybody's there so even you know Roman's girlfriend is there it's like these kids spend so much time with their parents. I mean, not yes. that that wasn't clear in other episodes, but I mean, when you're at the point where it's not just, you know, going to work with your father, family dinners every week, but you're literally traveling across the world with your father. And if you happen to be dating one of these kids, you're also traveling across the world. That kind of really brought home the parental obsession that also gets flagged in this when um ken's thing of the week tells him he talks about his dad so much right and he's like well he's just a very big presence in our lives <laughs> <laughs> no shit yeah and the way I mean, he delivers that like I, he hadn't thought about it at all he right like, right he was just like oh of course i do you know doesn't everybody talk about their dad this much and spend every waking moment thinking about their dad yeah can we also no, ken, can we sorry. also mention really quickly in that in that scene that um ken notes that he had interned at the denver chronicle <laughs> <laughs> oh when, my god those, yeah those poor people i know i know i just thought that was hilarious yeah i mean the kids are alarmingly yoked to their father and um they sort of in, in this episode especially um yeah we get a little bit of like explicit odes and with the with the videos um and you know clearly the the big parent child dynamic that's that's sort of uh accelerating the plot is with shiv who um really just seems to have the blinders on completely and is like full-on um power grab um willing to you know pimp out her husband i mean she's she's just reached a level of degeneracy um and desperation that is um definitely alarming and yeah it is pretty alarming that the roy kids don't seem to have much going on in their lives in terms of friends or um <laughs> hobbies i mean <laughs> i was thinking well, we were... well ken's got hobbies obviously <laughs> ken clearly yeah you know he's cultivating <laughs> some, <laughs> some some he's got enthusiasms really... right i mean how long has he been practicing that little rap I think I saw something about him probably um, showing it to Greg at that 30 under 30 party, like <laughs> testing it out, you know, testing a few bars out. No, there, no, Greg is, he just, Greg just has the CD and he's playing it for his friends, like the Mad Men episode <laughs> where uh, he, uh, Don is listening to Roger's memoir on tape. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he de- he delivered that with sort of a uh, unnerving amount of confidence, <laughs> even though yeah. he looked like a total um, you know fool. He yeah, I know def- we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about it later, but yeah, just <laughs> yeah. my God, the the range, you know. <laughs> the ra- that was my first thought. I was my first thought, and then when you tweeted that on the Roycast account, I think a lot of people related. It's just it was pretty impressive. <laughs> 
but let's let's rewind a bit in the episode and let's let's move through some of these minor subplots before we talk about kind of the meat of the episode with uh, Logan and Shiv and Rhea and the power grab. Um, but uh, the op- this episode actually opens after disappointingly, crushingly, I would say after the um, uh, first preview of Willa's play, which I have been dying to get a glimpse of. Um, because my, my theory the whole time was that Willis play was going to be like based on or like uncomfortably inspired by the Roy kids. Um, kind of like, uh, the film with the film in Sopranos Cleaver is like clearly based on Tony. Um, but, um, instead it just seems to be this really like farcical Broadway boondoggle where they've just spent way too much money hilariously on nine metric tons of sand and the play is literally called Sands but it's not like nice desert sand it's like dirty awful looking construction sand with sand mites living in it that are like uh infesting everybody who's sitting too close to the stage um i thought i thought that was pretty great i mean like if you weren't going to go that direction and make it like an allegory for the kids which i really would have loved to see i think this is like just the next best thing of just some ridiculous boondoggle that connor's way too deep involved in well it might also be like a beckett reference because his play happy days they have people who are literally buried in sand on stage (laughs) part of the production (laughs) yes thank you okay I forgot about that. <laughs> like the is that is that the one that has like the heads in jars on stage or that's that's a different one? Oh, good question. I don't remember. I don't think there's heads in jars in this. There's definitely like a garbage bin and then there's also the sand, but I think that's that's I think the that's one that's it. three heads in jars. I think that one is just called play. Is that right? I don't know. I have to say I'm not a huge Beckett fan. Um, you don't like heads in jars? I just find his plays kind of exhausting. So, you know, I've seen and read a few, and, and that's not one of them. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. so we really have no sense of what the play is like outside of the fact that it must be just a nightmare to watch, I guess, and perform in. Um, but it seems to impress Kendall because he makes this observation that like, wow, you know, you're a real playwright. And Willow's like, well, you know, I told you I was. I've been writing. And she's, and he's like, yeah, but you know, Roman's written a screenplay and all this stuff. Um, it's very <laughs> weird. Because that? She seems. But I mean, what does that even mean? Because like, they're like thirty percent of the dialogue is a placeholder. Yeah. So exactly. What is he impressed with? Yeah, like she seems that, really like, it insecure about acts? it. Ken is on really a little bit of a high. It. And, and Connor says too that just like this this is as bad as it'll be which yeah. she gets really affronted by it's like well you just admitted that you're gonna replace most of the dialogue so yeah but I think Ken more than anything is uh um in the words of Logan a little bit construct um so perhaps that's coloring <laughs> his view of the play's quality <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. They must not be. They must not be totally buried in sand because he got a good look at Jennifer, um, who's one of the lead actresses, uh, who he promptly, you know, spirits away to what, what does he call it? Like one of the all-time great psychosexual expeditions. Yeah, or something? expeditions. Yeah. <laughs> so obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of the like great the, line: Lewis and Clark of fucking or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
that reminded me of the great line from uh, Ten, uh, which could really be applied to any of these kids, uh, where one of the characters calls Dudley Moore one of the all-time great Anglo-Saxon heterosexual bores, um, <laughs> which could certainly apply to any of the Roys. Um, yeah, you, you, Gabby, you noted that uh, Connor is referred to as first pancake by his by his siblings in this episode. I, I did not understand that. What, what did you interpret that remark to mean? So the first pancake is always the one that's like a little bit, you know, screwed up and, um, you, you know, nobody oh. wants to take the first pancake. It's like the first slice of cake, you know, is the hardest one to uh, to pull out. And it's always kind of falls apart and crumbles a little bit. The first pancake, you know, you need to like get the pan hot and first pancake's always going to come out a little wonky so um i think the idea of of um it, it, the context of that was the kids arguing about raya um and shiv being pretty gung-ho about wanting to you know chop raya's head off and um i think she she uses similar words so she's um you know in combat mode and the brothers are kind of you know through various ways that they've been somewhat manipulated by Rhea, but also by their own, um, you know, opinions and general indifference. I mean, some of them make good points. I think Tom makes the, makes a really good point and gives Shiv decent advice, which she obviously discards. But anyway, sorry, the context of the pancake um, was Connor kind of just saying, you know, yeah, I think, you know, doesn't it look good to have somebody, a woman from the outside? And Shiv's like, oh, great, like, this is what you get when you, you know, try and get a strong opinion from Connor first pancake suggesting that um you know he's just a pushover and um he's the botched child right that he'll just take whatever he can get um what a what a, what a hurtful turn of phrase yeah pretty pretty hurtful and um but accurate. you know Connor then brings up the idea that he, that he calls her a brat and he he brings up the idea that he had it tougher than his three younger siblings um, which wouldn't be too hard to imagine. And then there is um, the reference to the booby hatch by Roman um, in in relation to Connor's mother, which is really the first time we've gotten any information about Connor's mother, but we know that, um, you know, she was institutionalized in, in a psychiatric hospital, um, which is, you know, a big bit of um, biographical data to just drop in sort of like a Roman funny line. Um, yeah, especially considering that we know that she was, um, wasn't she, like, foundational to the Reckney Ball? So yes. she had to have been, like, a big deal in New York society, so that must have been a big deal. If she I think was it was a big deal, and I think I think we know also from Connor's memories of the Reckney Ball before the three younger kids were involved, and, and he was just an only child. Um, you know, he, he did recall um, to Logan in, in Sad Sag Wasp Trap about being there with Mom, so we know it wasn't something that happened, like, when he was a baby, you know, it probably happened um, at a pretty formative developmental age um, where he, you know, he knew what was going on. And there's reason to speculate that, you know, it could have been due to an affair by Logan um, or, you know, that could have contributed to it, which um, is something else that is starting to, to be unearthed is, um, you know, Logan's wandering eye and his past relationships and his past wives um, as things with Marsha are not so stable anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Before we get into that, we should sort of establish just what's going on with the, um, the death pit. Obviously that threat is still very much alive. It's, it's not super, um, you know, there's not a lot of time devoted to it in this episode, but it's very, very important to, um, 
sort of establishing the foundation for Shiv's strategy and, um, you know, for propelling that storyline forward. Um, so basically a, a former accountant for Cruises, um, Mr. Weisel, who they <laughs> start calling the weasel, uh, was threatened with a lawsuit. Um, he apparently knows about all the uh, dirty deeds that went down in the 90s on the cruises. Um, I think Carolina says that he had to cover up a lot of, um, <laughs> what was it, Mo incidents. Um, and yeah, later on, um, we learned that this, um, uh, this former employee is turned down like a $5 million offer to stay quiet. Um, and that they presented him with the option of just name a number and he said there is no number which suggests that he has a wealthy backer somebody who's out to get waystar that could be you know a number of people um but that's what's going on with the and, death yeah yeah and one of the potential backers is ewan right right who resurfaces in this episode i i, I guess for the first time this season is this actually his first appearance this season it is, yeah. Yeah, wow. I couldn't believe that um, that they've waited this long to deploy him again, although he's used very well here. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I guess he's he's here ostensibly for the Dundee celebration of Logan's career. Haha, um, -ha, which he's uh, there to just kind of piss all over. Um, but he's also mainly there to give Greg this ultimatum um, where he says that, you know, because of he says that because of Logan's involvement, uh, uh, because of his uh, sucking up to climate change deniers, there's a good case to be made that he's worse than Hitler, and he'd appreciate it if Greg stopped working for him. So he basically says, you know, resign from the company or you won't get your two hundred and fifty million dollar inheritance. You know, Ewan's obviously quite wealthy because we don't know the history entirely, but he did work for the company in some fashion at some point. He still retains a board seat, and obviously a lot of his estate is tied up in in Waystar stock. We can assume. So uh, Greg stands to lose quite a bit if he pisses off Ewan, so he has to uh, take the uncomfortable step of uh, going to Logan and negotiating, as he says, his Gregsit, which is one of my favorite lines in this <laughs> that episode. That was great, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the, uh, the Greg and the Sandmites thing, I, the, on my first watch, I didn't know what was going on there. I honestly thought Greg was having some sort of, like, Morgellons outbreak. Um, I didn't realize that it was actual sand mites from the play. Um, yeah, he's he's just making enough money now that he's starting to get rich people diseases. He yeah, has gout exactly. Now. I was like, what? What's he talking about? But then I, I realized it was about the uh, the the low grade uh, sand used in the play, which was ridiculous. But um, which which Connor has no liability for, by the way. You have, right, you have, of course. You have to contact the sand supplier. Take like it up with else. the supplier. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, um. But uh, that's that scene between Greg and, and Logan is really interesting, Alex. I'm not sure what you made of it. I've heard from in some corners that you know people think that Logan has developed some affection for Greg. Um, I don't see much evidence of that, and I still think his chief motivation is keeping Greg around to piss off his brother. Is that what you took away from it? Um, as far as Logan's feelings, yeah, I, that's what I took away from it. Is he doesn't I mean he doesn't really care about anyone right he barely cares about his kids he just wants them alive and miserable and dependent on him um, yep. but I think the the key thing that was or that was interesting there is <coughs> just reminding us of Greg's connection to Ewan because like especially if Ewan is the person who's backing this 
it puts Greg in this sort of interesting position where a he's he gets to witness things between Logan and his brother that no one else is witnessing um you know like they're having some memory lane stuff and he actually gets to see that which no one else is privy to um and I guess we'll see what happens but certainly there's it's of interest that Greg has a foot in each of those doors at the moment um and so that could give him I don't know if that's negotiating power or room to maneuver I think it just sort of makes him more of a player than you might otherwise think and it's kind of a subtle way of reminding us of that yeah, well, he's, he's bound mm-hmm. to be kind of, yeah, caught between two worlds if it's indeed the case that Ewan is sponsoring this witness. Um, that's kind of a nightmare scenario, and that would put Greg, uh, who uh, has had to uh, make himself comfortable with a number of things over the course of the series, in another position where he has to decide, he has to make a tough decision that he'd really much rather not. Yeah, and just to speak to Alex, what you were saying, you mentioned briefly about a little bit of history shared between Logan and Ewan, and um, I thought that was fascinating just because on a rewatch, I noticed that in the um, first car ride in Dundee with Logan and Marsha and Connor, um, they're sort of passing the town, and Logan has sort of like this wistful look on his face, and he says, oh, the bandstand, Um, and Connor asks, you know, what happened there? And, you know, he can't really recall, but, you know, there's this sort of nostalgic um, energy that that Logan is is, um, you know, experiencing being back. But there's also anger and frustration and bitterness. And um, he's generally uncomfortable, I think, overall being back in his hometown forced to reckon with his memories. But um, but yeah, um, a few minutes after that, we get the scene with the first scene with Ewan and Logan and um, we we learned sort of one of the more tender bits that we ever have um, about Logan and his childhood and that he used to um, bird watch and, and keep a notebook log um, tracking those he spotted and he mentions to Ewan oh in the bandstand I saw you know a glistening whatever um, and it was interesting to me that he could share that um, and recall that memory and bring it up to Ewan, whereas he couldn't with his son. Um, I think it speaks to the solidarity between the solidarity between Ewan and Logan that we've seen that has sort of muddied our conception of who Ewan actually is in terms of his, you know, outward facing politics and his, um, you know, sort of frugality in comparison to Logan's ostentatiousness and and overconsumption but you know it's a cute little moment between them um talking about um how they how logan used to keep track of these birds and then ewan would go in and, and cross out um the ones that logan was lying about so sort of a touching little moment to imagine those two little boys in their amid their their daydreams and quarrels and all this tragedy that clearly surrounded them um as young boys I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in this episode that has to do with how history is parsed out and who's interested in it and who isn't Mm -hmm. and who asks about it and and how they are curious. You know, starting at the beginning, you have Connor who has this ridiculous line about, you know, he won't understand his father until he shits in a bucket. 
Um, but then you also see he's like genuinely curious about his father. You know, mm-hmm. he when when his dad says, "Oh, the bandstand," he's like, "Oh, tell us a story." And that's a question that none of the other kids would have asked. Right. And it's an interesting, you know, why wouldn't they have asked? Because they're not genuinely curious, because they don't have that kind of relationship with him. Maybe some combination of the two. Because then also, when they go to the house, Shiv is just obsessed with how it's not that bad. Right. And um, I think what's interesting, too, is she kind of can't see past anything that's at... She takes everything at face value. Like, maybe both those things were true. Maybe he did shit in a bucket and he lived there. Exactly, yeah. What kind of horrible shit was going on um she's incapable of seeing that just like she thinks you know i mean it's interesting how does everyone perceive this party that ray is organizing i suspect that um logan's wife knows that this is not going to go down well which is part of why she allows it to happen whereas shiv can't see that many moves forward yeah i mean the kids are so emotionally limited Um, And and that scene really struck me and and was a reminder of that. I mean, granted, part of their the reason that they are so limited in that way um, is because of their father. But um, yeah, the way that the kids sort of um, were so quick to minimize um, anything that might have been, you know, remotely difficult about Logan's childhood, you know, like they're both they're all looking at it like this isn't so bad. I mean, Connor has the ridiculous line like I'd live here. Well, I wouldn't, but someone could. Um, and, you know, even when Logan pulls up in the car with Marsha and he, he can't get out of the car. And I referenced something in, the, in our last episode about something similar that happened um, when Trump, way before he was president, visited his, his mother's hometown in Scotland. But um, even when he pulls up there and, and Marsha asks, um, has it changed? And he says completely. Um, but the fact that the, yeah, the kids can't seem to hold in their mind that um that logan's childhood could have still been as difficult as he describes or as difficult as he projects you know even though he doesn't go into details is um it's really sad and we see that in the way that they use rose um logan's sister who i mentioned you know obviously something traumatic happened there and they use that as a way to mess with raya which is so depraved you know when um they don't even consider that um you know, that's something serious and devastating that happened to their father and could maybe explain some of the reasons of why the way he is. Instead, you know, they use it as um, as this way to get back at, at, at Rhea, which is, you know, was really just uh, so demonstrative of how little awareness and emotional intelligence these kids have. And, and it's quite sad. Yeah, this was the this was the most fucked up game of parent trap that's ever been played. <laughs> seriously um yeah and shiv is sort of at the helm of this although you know in the beginning the boys are willing to kind of go there too but then you know they they sort of turn but yeah i think it might be easier for logan to present his childhood as materially impoverished as opposed to having to reckon with like the real heavy events that characterized it you know rose his mother dying at a young age the abuse from uncle noah seems like being poor is a more acceptable trauma for Logan for which there's redemption essentially and he achieved that redemption by becoming obscenely rich 
Um, whereas those other things require sort of introspection and, and reliving of pain, and Logan doesn't see anything noble or redemptive about engaging in that kind of honesty with the past, whereas Ewan sort of positions himself against Logan um, and is all about the past and the way that he talks about history more broadly, but also their family history, as we saw in the Thanksgiving episode, and then again um, in the confrontation in this episode, and um, you know, even his desire for, for resolution and in Thanksgiving episode, he says he wasn't expecting an apology. You know, he sort of has shaped his identity around, um, you know, these values of him being, you know, this, you know, thrifty guy and, and he has these on his politics. I mean, it's the second time in his very short, um, role on the show that he, he brought up climate change, which, you know, is defined by both the future and the past. He, he talks, of, you know, about mom would have hated what you've done. So Logan is, I mean, Ewan is sort of this mirror for Logan. That's not to say that he's a totally virtuous or good guy, because I think, um, you know, we don't know that. Um, we don't know enough about him. And, and he doesn't come by that money spotlessly. Exactly. But he, he does represent a very interesting mirror for Logan in that Logan is so averse to, um, you know, unearthing and, and reopening things from the past. And, um, you know, he needs to present them in his way on his terms, whereas, um, you know, Uncle Ewan is sort of an open book about all of that stuff. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple exchanges uh, in this episode that really stand out to me and and one of them that just lingers over the whole episode is that exchange between logan and shiv where shiv you know says you don't like you don't like the past very much do you and he says you know i do but he says like you know the past is is made up just so much of it it's fake you know (laughs) the future is what's real you know what's at hand what's next is what he prefers to think about um whereas you know the past is i don't it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting notion um it's not entirely clear what he means but i think at least in part you know it's you know the past or your past is sort of a fiction that you can paint for yourself um right it's certainly something that he'd rather not revisit and that's a big part of the reason why he chooses rio over shiv because you know a new relationship as opposed to having to deal with all of the wreckage that's between them as father Mm -hmm. and daughter in this broken relationship is too painful to deal with i was going to bring in a a friend of the show vikram had a great point on uh twitter this week about how the um uh Ewan is kind of like a Dr. Krakauer, the um, therapist in the in the Sopranos, who is the voice of moral clarity, who cuts through <laughs> Carmela's bullshit and is similarly a completely humorless buzzkill. Um, you know, to just kind of cut through the sort of comedic tone of the show, you need somebody who is just absolutely humorless. Right. And it almost reaches, like, somewhat parody levels with, like, the Hitler reference and, um, you know, some Tacitus. of the... Tacitus. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the exchange but, between him I and mean... Greg where he's like, t- he quotes Tacitus <laughs> and Greg's like, yeah, Tacitus, man, you know, all, all killer, no filler. Did he ever have a bad quote? <laughs> but James Cromwell is just, you know, such a stud and carries himself so well um, that, that he makes it work. Um, and it's necessary, I think, you know, um, someone needs to, to remind us, um, you know, what Logan is, is hiding and what he refuses to, to, um, contend with. Shall we talk about some of the other kids? Shall we talk about what's going on? Let's, 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 let's go to, let's go to Roman first. Um, because one of the exchanges I'm really interested in getting, um, both of your thoughts on is the exchange between Roman and Jerry 
um, early in the episode. Jerry is trying to see if Roman can leverage this relationship with Edward, this mysterious billionaire Skyon from I, I'm not sure if they really clarified or if they said like a made up country or something um, but he's uh, some sort of Middle Eastern billionaire um, a dad with a hose to the central bank as they said and now what they're really looking for is an option to take them private you know they're looking for an injection of enough capital to uh, take the company private which would be pretty much their only escape hatch from the takeover bid at this point which doesn't seem to be going their way um, but in that scene, Roman makes a very curious kind of proposition or proposal to Jerry, where he suggests they get married, kind of, um, and says, you know, not really, but, you know, I kidnap you and force you to live with me, or you cut my dick off or something, and then he just kind of, like, mumbles his way out of the room. And I, I wasn't entirely sure what to make of that, other than it just being a gesture of Roman's kind of increasing dependency and attachment to Jerry. Um, I mean, Alex, what, what, was, what is your kind of take on the relationship that's forming here? They haven't really been, like, sexually intimate since, like, three episodes ago. So it doesn't quite have... that. So that hasn't totally dominated this relationship, but it does seem to be mutating into something, at least on Roman's end. I guess I took it to mean some combination of him wanting a contract and also some kind of weird proposition that he could squirm out of, I guess. Like, if they are going to be a dream team, then, you know, proposing marriage is sort of like saying maybe we should get something in writing that we're a team. Uh-huh. I'm guessing. But then also it's Roman, so it's crazy. And then <laughs> obviously he has, like, weird feelings for Jerry, right? He gets, he freaks out when it's proposed that Logan might have, that she might have slept yes. with Logan. <laughs> <laughs> you get Roman's, Kieran Culkin's angry little boy face when that is suggested by Connor, which was so <laughs> oh, to- odd because because totally Roman, Roman tends to like identify with his dad's sexual conquests. And, and so I think it really was telling that um, he did not like that idea that Jerry might have might have possibly slept with Logan in the past. Um, I think there's something some sort of real sort of uh, sexual emotional attachment to whatever extent Roman is capable of those things developing with Jerry and for me the, the marriage proposal was like not a surprise at all I practically took the the Argestes proposal as a marriage proposal um I think in, in Roman's <laughs> you know fantasy life yeah you know he sort of has a wife slash business partner in Jerry and then you know, uh, Tabs is his eunuch bestie and sort of the, the hot, more conventional <laughs> girlfriend that he can bring to events and, um, you know, present as his um, his partner. But yeah, I mean, I think Roman is kind of, he's in love with Jerry, you know, he, he needs a mom and... <laughs> Yeah, he kind of wants to. There, but. He kind of wants to marry his mom and his sister because Tabs is more, almost more like a sister figure at this point. Right. Him. Yeah. I mean, he's clearly more comfortable around women. We know that. Um, and you know, he needs women for validation, and, and he doesn't really expect much um, from men emotionally. Yeah. That, well, that... And also, he nobody takes him seriously except Jerry. Right. And Jerry is no bullshit. Like she'll tell him when he's being an idiot. So it's like, so it's extra satisfying when she says good job because, right, like it kind of means good job. Um, and because Roman does understand that Jerry is really smart and good at what she does and that, you know, his dad has entrusted her in this role for decades. 
um, when, you know, he's very quick on a whim to, to get rid of people. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I do think there's a lot tied up in it in terms of, of the validation that he gets through that relationship. I thought it was funny, though, too, when, um, when Jerry comes into the room first to, to, to speak to, to Roman about the, the Edward deal, she meant she's talking about, um, Logan and Rhea, who clearly, um, you know, we learned this episode, are sleeping together and having some sort of affair. And, um, you know, Jerry says, you know, Frank is concerned. He says he feels like this is something new with respect to Logan's kind of um, demeanor and attitude. She says, um, you know, he hasn't been like this since uh, Sally Ann, which (laughs) was another, I guess, lover um, or love interest of Logan that was mentioned for the first time last episode. Um, and she says he's losing focus. He's out to dinner four nights a week. Um, which I assume meant he was out to dinner with Rhea. Um, so I guess it's pretty clear now that, um, you know, Logan is, um, carrying on this relationship, which was still unclear up, up until last episode. Yeah. It's a, it's an unholy union. Um, uh, Alex, I know you wanted to talk a bit about Kieran Culkin. Did anything stand out to you in that scene in his performance? Yeah, I mean, I think something that he he does a lot um, is is like he's incapable of s- standing still or being still. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, he's he's just he's constantly squirming, and it and and you know, in the other scene with his siblings when um, Shiv wants to plot Ray's death, he's like walking around the room touching the the lamp yeah the lamp <laughs> <laughs> Draw, um, drawing out uh visuals of his childish retorts <laughs> yeah like there's definitely something there's a restlessness i mean there's definitely adhd but i think he's very just uncomfortable in his physicality and his body yeah um and to a degree he does that less with jerry in the sense that He's still moving around the room and kind of avoiding eye contact, but he isn't off in a corner. Yeah. Like, he is actually engaging with her. Um, and you do see that, I guess, also with Tabitha. Like, he, he does actually, like, talk to her. Yeah. Or try to, anyway. <laughs> in so much as he's capable of it. Um, there was a great piece but, of physical acting, too, in that scene when Roman's leaving the room and he like he's just thrown this at Jerry and then, you know, makes it about this weird you know oh you know you eat me i eat you you cut off my dick and he leaves the room and he's like bye and he like sticks his hand back out to like wave (laughs) it's just so perfect yeah i mean i think certainly when i started watching succession i mean for me half of the pleasure of the show was kieran pilkin's reaction shots (laughs) um and i think it's it's been nice getting to see him interact with jerry more because he actually gets to do something meatier than sort of being the, the child that's being ignored but you know sort of talking sense did you guys think he um improved the the ode to dad when he did the sort of uh the goofy one after they told him that he needed to record again uh i don't know i mean like it obviously was a scripted scene but it kind of had that flavor to it yeah. I think one of the things that's funny, though, about those initial recordings is there's nothing even remotely sincere about the way he delivers that. No, he's, like, dead-eyed when he delivers it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's almost, like, playing up how deadpan he is. It's, like, yeah. it's like too deadpan. And then you compare that with um, 
Connor, God. who I think thinks he is sincere. He's totally sincere. Oh, he yeah, does for sure. he does idolize his dad. Um he also Aww. idolizes his siblings to a big degree. He loves his family. Um he's just also a complete psycho. Yeah. yeah. His recording was pretty <laughs> embarrassing. Super dad. I mean, yeah, you see you see the shades you, of dad. of the uh, the desperate child. <laughs> Yeah, the, the outro music for this episode is going to be Charlie XCX's Super Love. That's going to be it. <laughs> and then, of course, Shiv's recording is just pure edgelord. Like, fuck this dad. Um, She's yeah. so cool. She's so well, cool. So-, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, to bring it back to, to Lear, like, one of the things that for me is sort of, um, I guess, the fun of watching the show is trying to figure out who is the Cordelia and who is, like... So in Lear, Cordelia is the one child who won't play the game. Okay. So she's the only one who says, like, you know, I love you as much as I should, basically, um, but won't tell him that, won't give him flowery language. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, he doesn't understand that that's sincere and everyone else's words aren't. And so he disinherits her. So it's interesting, like, there's... And before that, she's the favorite child. So it's kind of interesting to see Shiv doing the you know this is stupid because that's very much the cordelia role um and you know setting up these declarations of love that's very much gesturing towards lear yeah she also and the opening of lear she also kind of does that in the summer palace in the season premiere when he's going around the table asking everybody if they should sell or not and she just like refuses to answer because she's like this is a game it's stupid um you know and i'm not going to say it in front of everybody else which I mean, Cordelia does end up disinherited and dead, so maybe not a great strategy. <laughs> yeah, again, if we're if we're charting this as you know a sort of a corollary to season one of Shiv's the Kendall figure, obviously it's not going to end well for her. <laughs> Which I don't think they're going to entirely do a retread, but nor do I think that you know victory lies in wait um, for Shiv. I mean, they may not have a company at the end of this season, so we'll see. No, well, and I think the other thing is that's interesting. Uh, you know, going back to um, Roman and Karen Culkin he has that kind of interesting line where he tells them he knows more about the business than everybody else mm-hmm. um, which is kind of true yep and they brush um, him off Shiv says you know uh, management training is corporate daycare and he says you know dad cares about it Jerry cares about it you know there's Roman's kind of quietly in the background actually doing due, dil- due diligence um but people don't take him seriously, so they don't actually see that he's a threat. Yeah, I mean, Schiff's not entirely wrong. I mean, those kinds of management training programs are probably about as much bullshit as Ken's business school training is. Oh, they are for sure. Right. But that doesn't mean that... <laughs> but it means something that he did but... it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But part of that is just being able to tell your board that, like, the kid has trained, right? right? Yeah, it's doing the work, Compared you with know? Shiv, who has, has not done anything, thinks she knows everything, and then did this stupid report. Right, yeah, I mean, the whole impetus yeah. impetus for the management training was after Bore on the Floor the next morning um, when Roman was completely defeated and was like, what can I do to get him to take me seriously? And Jerry's like, do the management training, put in the work, you know? So, right, I mean, it speaks to the idea that you know, Roman may not be ready now, but I mean, he is, he's definitely committed. I mean, he, he went uh, into real America for six weeks and did, um, you know, the whole, um, you know, corporate babysitting, which is, you know, definitely an accurate term. But um, yeah, Shiv is just, just thinks that 
you know, her experience as a strategist is enough, um, you know, to, to take her far and, and her, you know, all her natural, incredible talents. <laughs> well, and also, so Rhea goes around and tells all the kids, mm-hmm. you know, what their chances are at succession. And it's interesting that, you know, the thing she tells Roman is also the thing she told Logan. Right. Where she's just, you know, lying through her teeth to everyone mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And, and you wonder is, you know, how much is Rhea, you know, telling the truth there, both in that first scene with Logan when she's assessing the kids and then when she sort of goes around um, this time and, you know, we see her speaking to Kendall saying, you know, you're going to be the one on the other side. And, um, and she does the same with Roman. Um, but yeah, she doesn't have, um, I don't think a great deal of, of confidence in Shiv, but, but Shiv does kind of, um, you know, big dick energy her, um, in the first encounter they have, um, in Dundee, and, and I just want to mention that this encounter, then right after Marsha has the, uh, memorable STD question encounter, that these two women who are sort of the number one and number two women in Logan's life, or, you know, um, suppose that they are, that they tower over Rhea Jarrell, and I noticed this, um, I mean, Brendan pointed it out in um, the last episode at the lunch between Rhea and Shiv, but um, I noticed it in these two scenes as well. And I looked it up, and Haima Boss and Sarah Snook are only 5'5", which is not very tall. And Holly Hunter is 5'2", um, but they look about a foot taller than her in both of those scenes. They're both wearing really high heels. Though, yeah, too. no, I mean, it's, I mean, still it's, not definitely, apart, it's definitely but the it's, heels, but, but yeah, there's something also about the filming, too, I think. Uh, oh yeah for sure so there's a lot going on in well not just this episode but this episode especially where people tower over other people yeah like tabitha also seems like a foot taller than i think she actually actually is is. (laughs) is she really she's like five foot ten and kieran culkin is probably like five five so maybe not a foot but um, they regularly show but with, show them standing next to each yeah. other, right? Like they could have smoothed that out, a la Tom Cruise with a, a nice little <laughs> <laughs> milk crate to stand on, or you know, have them seated. But they they do not. They are they really want you oh, to yeah. see that she is way taller than no, him. Yeah. She she literally towers over him. Um, something about the way that Shiv and um, in this episode Marsha tower over um, Rhea feels. Um, more, you know, particularly stylized by, um, by the show. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that, that conversation between, um, Marsha and Rhea also establishes that, um, Logan and Rhea are indeed sleeping together. And that was pretty, um, <laughs> rough moment for Rhea. Um, probably the roughest we've seen so far aside from, you know, getting fired. I'm still waiting to see the evidence. I'm just, I'm not sold. Something something else is going on there. They're doing some weird ritual or something. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you don't think sex ritual. is going on? Absolutely not. Just, well, I just, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't quite visualize it, you know. I mean, it's hard to visualize, but yeah, I feel like at this point. <laughs> uh... You can't visualize it without the cardigan on, you know. <laughs> and she's so petite, like, ugh, I don't know. Um... 
but yeah, I would say, uh, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm buying it at this point. I mean, like, uh, you know, Jerry said, and, and Frank is sort of the guy who observes Logan's moods and, and Jerry and Frank, you know, as his longtime inner circle, um, you know, they say something's different about him, um, that, you know, but it, it's true. It could be, I, I do think it's probably there's something bigger going on, but, um, I do think that he is, you know, it's safe to say he's probably dating and sleeping with Rhea. Um, but we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the whole, uh, exchange with, um, you know, Marsha is interesting because, you know, Marsha is playing this kind of similar game to Shiv where, you know, Shiv's trying to parent trap Rhea and, um, you pl- use her, exploit her siblings as leverage to try to make Rhea feel, you know, boxed in. Whereas Marsha's kind of doing something similar, but she's more about giving her enough rope to hang herself, right? Like mm-hmm. letting, like letting Rhea, you know, um, uh, expose the ways in which she doesn't really know Logan all that well, you know, l- allows her to plan a surprise party, which she knows Logan is going to hate without saying mm-hmm. anything, you know, not necessarily encouraging it, but certainly not interfering. Um, so and it's yeah. just another instance of just how Marsha is, you know, much cannier and in many ways more effective than Shiv is. Yeah, even on the plane ride there, Shiv tries to rope Marsha in, you know, with we might have similar interests and, um, you know, Marsha very coolly kind of turns her off. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Marsha is, uh, you know, possibly playing the smartest game, although we do see her in sort of a, a genuinely sad state at the end of the episode. Yeah, right, like this, the sort of lack of closeness we've observed between Marsha and Logan this season has, seems to have really taken its toll on her, where, you know, she feels like, you know, oh, Rhea, you know, another one of Logan's flings, I can handle this, but then... Uh, she's blindsided by him stepping aside and announcing Ray as his successor. And, you know, she has this very bitter monologue where she says, you know, like, you're boring me. And um, you you've know, you been careless of here. me. And why didn't you? Yeah. Why didn't you tell me that, you know, you were, um, you know, bringing somebody new in? And he says, I don't like the way that you told me I should sell my business. And um, yeah, there seems to be, you know, an ambivalence within Marsha where she really loves Logan and she feels shortchanged by him, but, um, you know, emotionally, but I think she also is genuinely bored and, and frustrated and feels, um, you know, like she has less agency in the relationship. There's a moment when they're heading into the car and Logan's sort of listing what's going to, the events for the evening. And she says in French, you know, I'm not your secretary. Um, you know, she's clearly getting fed up in in her new role whether it's you know we don't know how new it is compared to you know what their relationship was like pre-season one but uh, clearly it's shifted he needs her less um and and sort of the the stakes that he's he has you know tackled by i'm not sure if that's the right way to say it but by by being with someone like by having a a fling with raya it's not just having a fling with some um, you know, some actress, it's somebody who has, right. It's somebody who has, you know, serious stakes in the company, in his life. Um, you know, the company is his life. So I think that was, you know, probably very shocking for Marsha to have, um, you know, somebody on the inside like that be, you know, his, his current lover. 
Yeah, and I think the um, the place that Shiv ends up in this episode is very interesting because Shiv ends up finding an interesting bit of leverage, um, but she almost does it by accident, and she mm-hmm. and she finds herself in a position almost by 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 accident that she wouldn't have wound up in on purpose because she allows herself to be part of uh, I think Jerry calls it the "What the fuck are we gonna do?" committee. Um, because Logan doesn't want to deal, for a number of reasons, directly with the ongoing Death Pit situation. So Shiv allows herself to be his proxy. You know, to be, as Jerry terms it, the sin cake eater, and to have the conversations that the powerful people don't want to be implicated in. So it's sort of an undignified position, right? It's the position that Tom found himself in, um, to, you know, to eat the shit. Um, But Shiv actually gains a good bit of leverage here, because she's in on these conversations where they realize that whoever's announced as CEO is going to be implicated in all of this. And she uses that leverage when Logan is wavering over whether to appoint Rhea to nudge him that direction. Um, but I don't think all, Shiv... all of this, meaning the death pit stuff. I don't know if you, yeah. 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 But I mean, she, uh, there's, there's no chance that she would have, you know, willingly gone that way if she hadn't been kind of boxed out by Rhea. And it, it just, it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting because it allows her to kind of temporarily gain what we can assume would be the upper hand or gain a position, position of advantage in her strategy. Um, but it's, it's also just highlights, you know, the absolute, you know, blind spots in her yeah. view of the, of the situation. Yeah, it's a very tenuous sort of power grab. Um, it, it seems like clearly the smart thing to do from her perspective, but um, how it plays going forward, um, you know, I, I'm not really sure what her her you know end game is. It just seems like she is sort of grasping um, at any opportunity that she can to um, nudge herself back into that you know beloved daughter role um, without much thought or consideration um and no i think that's uh you know speaks to the fact that shiv is not as smart as she thinks she is and you know things fall apart for her and she is not always in control of her emotions um and she becomes kind of depraved in all of this so what do you make of logan emphasizing to her that she's so smart do you think that that's why she thinks she's so smart is because her dad's been inflating her ego absolutely yeah i mean and that's the person that's the person that she wants the most to hear from that she's smart you know she doesn't give a shit if anybody else thinks she's smart but if dad thinks she's smart then you know she has fulfilled um her role as you know the competent one the the good one well, but also think about, you know, what Logan says right before telling her that, you know, she's smart. There's that there's another great exchange that I think lingers over this episode where, you know, he's um, uh, talking about everything that bothers him about Ray. And he goes, you know, she's blue. You know, she's liberal. And he, she goes, right. yeah, dad, so am I. And he goes, yeah, but you fucking get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you, you get so it. Telling. Yeah. You know, so that's uh, that's kind laughs, of what yeah. he, yeah, that's kind of what he yeah. means by you're smart. He means you're as cynical as I am. You know, right. it's like you see the world in the same way, um, or at least in, in similar terms. Shiv is the most like her dad in that cynicism, in that, you know, ruthless ambition. And um, yeah, I I think um, also Logan is very confused about and continues to be confused. I mean, he has been for, you know, all all, all of these episodes about how he really feels about his kids and, and who they are and what they're good at. 
Um, I think, you know, Logan, it's, it's becoming clear that he's, you know, he's, he's older, his, um, you know, cognitive abilities are, you know, not as strong physically. He's not as strong, although he's clearly much stronger than he was in season one. He is an old man. Um, you know, he's faced with the prospect much more, um, explicitly of mortality in this episode. Um, well, not, you know, not through his own personal experience, but what people are bringing to him and by being back in his, um, you know, his hometown. And I think he's just as confused as any of the kids are in, in terms of who's who's going to end up with the power. I think it's very hard for him to think of anyone else um, besides him. Yeah, and you know, to think about his children in, in that sense his, requires his revisiting the past, um, which he doesn't want to do. Right. You know, and in that scene with Shiv, when she presents him, um, you know, this great book of, of Roy Holmes, which is such a funny and on point gift for, you know, a billionaire, because what do you get a billionaire? They have everything. So you try and think of something sentimental. Um, <laughs> and in that case, it's, you know, here's this catalog. Yeah, he just, he just thinks it's a nice book homes, with nice pictures of houses. Um, <laughs> like these are really nice homes and she's like you don't rem- like malibu that's, that's, like, I, I do really houses. like that because that's such that's such like an <laughs> in-character thing where he's like, oh, these, uh, look at the architecture you know that's this is a really nice gift <laughs> it's like no these are our houses <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but yeah i think it was a very funny moment but it also speaks to sort of just yeah logan is uh you know he's not as sharp as he once was and he's very very deeply confused um, and, um, I think, you know, because of that, we get these episodes where, um, you know, the energy is constantly changing and, and, um, the kids are, you know, occupying these different roles and, and we don't know if it's, if it's going to be who it's going to be. And, um, you know, that's obviously the whole point of the show, but I think Logan's general confusion and the fact that he's not some mastermind, um, in terms of of this succession plan um, where he might have come off as more of a mastermind in, in season one um, you know, is very much driving um, the, the nature and energy of these episodes. Like, you know, Ken in this episode, for instance, is a totally different person than he was in the last episode. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating, the show's ability to just continually keep us on our toes um, with respect to, you know, the, the plots and, and and the characters themselves. It's funny how people find themselves, you know, really empathizing with one character one episode and then being repulsed by them the next. Um, it's part of the beauty of the show. Um, but, yeah, if we want to... Yeah, speaking of ups Ken and downs... Bit, he's definitely in a different place than uh, we saw him last. Speaking of going through it, uh, Ken is... Uh, right he's kind of like on a manic swing it almost seems after being after being in a really low point in the previous episode the previous episode saw him at sort of a high point with naomi and then at an extreme low when he's brought um face to face with the consequences of his actions um at that visit to uh the boys the dead boys home and so he takes up like this fling with jennifer and you know takes her around to the uh, uh, the 50 year event where he introduces her to Logan which is just such a 
honestly such a relatable bit of just like you know introducing two people who have nothing in common uh and you know ken is unable to stammer out anything other than you know you know she's she's really amazing dad and and she she says awesome yeah she's in theater and he's and then jennifer says awesome twice which she's he in theater for her for laser which, later which is just projection of course because the only thing he can say is amazing um. <laughs> yeah logan says she has the mind of oh, a balloon so mean. um <laughs> yeah and that was kind of bizarre and and dark and sad the way that um he was so quick to just like unceremoniously send this woman who he's been like you know love bombing for the last 48 hours um home on a plane without saying goodbye just because um you know she wasn't good enough for dad um and and you know Lo uh, ken has his highs in this episode um Clearly, he's he's feeling better um, when Rhea sort of is trying to bait him into um, trusting her, you know, and, and she says, I know you've been through a lot. He's like, you know, he's got this smile on um, and just great acting by Jeremy Strong, just the contrast, the fucking range. Um, and, you know, he looks really smug and self-satisfied. He's like, no, I'm, you know, I'm totally over my shit. Yeah, he totally says, he says, I just, I just met somebody um, just great, you know, I just, just met somebody um, new. Then, you know. So I'm in, I'm in a really good place. I'm not, I'm not in the place yeah. you think I'm in. <laughs> She's fantastic. So and, uh, yes, <laughs> I'm not in the place you think I'm in. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's very childish. Um, and, you know, then he has his, a little upswing on, on stage with, um, <laughs> with his rap but but by the end of the episode and, and when he sends jennifer off and he i think he sort of sobers up both literally and figuratively um you know you kind of see the concern returning to his face and um his smile is faded um you know he, he's back in his head realizing that um you know this power that logan has over him is um you know quite frightening and he, he might be you know underestimating alex it can you give us feeling. the uh, theater perspective um, on, on what happens when your lead actress goes to scotland in the middle of previews <laughs> yeah it's not good there's a like you know connor, connor is uh freaking out not great bobbing for you know good reason um but i mean for it, have I am I remembering this right but is this the first time that Kendall has dated somebody a half his age and be you know kind of a peasant that we've seen okay yeah it's a good point I didn't even think about the age that we've seen yeah. right. she she looks to be quite a bit younger than Ken who's probably around 40 so does Na so does well, Naomi also, really uh Naomi could be 30 yeah yeah, there's a there's a clear age difference between this woman and Naomi's and this obviously you know educated um, and comes from this dynasty that um, really values your right. Shakespearean knowledge among other <laughs> among other things. And before that, there was Ken and his wife, who he actually <laughs> wanted you know emotional support from, and now he's sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel. All he's getting out of her is sex. So I mean that's depressing in a in a different way yeah there's there's all kinds of signs that this is just 
yeah, different than any other relationship we've seen Ken in before, and that he's really, really flailing for some kind of connection and really blowing it all out of proportion for what we see. Yeah, I mean, not that I'm saying his connection with Naomi was good. Like, <laughs> no, it was a, no, it was a really good idea. <laughs> they weren't exactly yeah. a good influence on each other, but at least they were, you know, somewhat closer to equals as opposed to the, you know, 22-year-old that he can boss around and put on a plane and... Well, yeah, and there was... And, yeah. There was some actual, yeah, substance to their conversation as opposed to just, like, this girl was just sort of, like, a, you know, a fuck buddy. Like, the way he was talking about, you know... Yeah. The way he was talking about her was and not in, like, also, a measured, I mean, realistic how good way. How can she be at acting if she wants to be in Willa's play? Maybe it's really good. <laughs> or maybe Connor's paying really well. <laughs> We should also mention that um, in that first scene with the play, there's a quick moment where um, the actor that Shiv slept with early on in the season, um, when she goes out with Willa and the cast, when Tom is out of town, um, the actor shows up and kind of says hi to Shiv while she's standing with Tom in a way that's like, we know each other. And Tom sort of deduces that that's the actor she slept with. And it's just kind of, it was like a very sad moment. I feel like Tom is maybe reaching his edge a little bit. Shiv is just off the deep end with what she's asking of him. So, so after that, you know, it's not even like 24 hours later when she's asking Tom to pimp herself, pimp him out, pimp him, sorry, when she, She's asking Tom to pimp himself out for the sake of sabotaging Rhea. And then when they arrive at the event, she just like very casually and wantonly tells Tom to tell dad that Rhea <laughs> like stuck her that's hands down. That's insane. He's like, what? Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. and That's normal. Like, she says it like it's just no big deal. Like, go do this for me. Um, and yeah, she's just completely off her rocker. And, and Tom says straight up to her you know there might be a world where Rhea is better for me um and he gives her some decent advice in that moment um about you know the possibility of the fact that Logan might not give it to Shiv and like what's who's to say that um you know after things go down that it you know she's going to be the one like it might be smart and and Shiv has that line uh, another incredible line that uh, just shows absolutely the uh, entitlement that Shiv approaches this whole situation with, where uh, she says, you know, fine, you know, Tom won't help me, but she goes, you know, my dad made me an offer, and I'm going to redeem that coupon, which is just ridiculous. Um, and, like, <laughs> and it's I mean, just, she's, you so, know, it's, she's it's, so immature. It's like, it's Yeah, astounding. it's just incredibly, yeah, it's incredibly reductive of the whole situation. And yeah, just the idea that, you know, there's like, there's, it's like no backseas, right? There's no backseas. You can't, you can't take this back from me once you've promised it to me, etc. Um, yeah, totally absurd. Um, well, just to backpedal like a little bit, I think one of the reasons we have that scene at the beginning where she recognizes the actor and is sort of embarrassed that, you know, she knows him. That sets up sort of how we're supposed to read Ken's relationship with the actress in the play. Right, right. And then Tom asks, like, are you sweating when he's talking to her about it? Yeah. But I think this show does a lot of stuff like that structurally where it, it tells you, it gives you things and tells you how to read them. You know, mm -hmm. like the fact that it starts with those declaration speeches that's the succession is happening um cue and the fact that we start with um 
yeah, that, that there's that exchange at the theater, you know, tells us how to interpret these these players. Right. And I think even in this season, especially because there's so much traveling, like who ends up in a car with Logan and at what time and who else is in the car tells a lot. Like, I think, that, you know, the scene where they're going to visit the old house, you see him in the car with Marsha. And then there's this sort of late last minute reveal that Ken's in the car also. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't be that surprising that he's there because, you know, the other kids are, well, I don't think Roman's at the house. Um, but the other kids are there. So, okay. So he's in the car, but it's also telling that he's, you know, he's part of the inner circle with Marsha. Yeah. Yeah. And pointedly who's not there. Right. It seems like the, the less ambition Ken has and the more that he's caught up in his kind of personal life and, and um, not so invested in, in being the top dog that, you know, it obviously creates um, more trust and comfort for Logan having him around, um, which again right. speaks to well, just how can... confused his, um, you know, his conception of his relationship with his kids and how much he needs them, how much he wants them to be a part of his life personally professionally um is just so muddled well i think also shiv is the only one who hasn't had a car ride with her father like in this episode Mm, there was um connor's in the car at the beginning and then i think last episode was at the incredibly awkward car ride with roman and another one with ken yeah and another one with ken and of course there was shiv like finding it impossible to even get time alone with her father Um, You know, there's a lot going on just with who's sitting where in the plane and all of these sort of modes of transport that are forcing people into the same space with each other. It ends up saying a lot about the power dynamics of... Absolutely, yeah. Even on... Who's who's on the ins and who's on the Yeah, thinking about the plane, um, like you mentioned, when um, Carolina and Jerry bring the news of um, the, the weasel to Logan... Um, he's like, who knows? And Jerry's like, Kendall, Carl. And you kind of see Shiv um, coming in from another room and sitting down, you know, next to Marsha. And, and um, again, it just shows right now who, you know, who Logan trusts and um, that, you know, the person that he, you know, the child that he has most, who's most invested in, in, in the power grab at the moment is usually, um, you know, ironically excluded from... Um, some of these you know top secret inner circle conversations but you know she manages to, to well, wedge herself in um later on well else there's also the fact that marcia is sort of sitting there overhearing all mm-hmm. of this conversation yeah. and nobody's really acting like she's a person she's sort of furniture yeah. in that scene which is sort of which is interesting and that kind of parallels later with why with greg getting to overhear things between um Logan and you and like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with just who's allowed to be in right. the room or in the scene and whose presence and who's is allowed valued, to overhear yeah. or or whose presence is unremarked mm-hmm. on because you know I mean that's been a thing with this with the whole series is you know Greg is the one that people ignore but then is Greg going to end up you know having information or power over them that they're not aware of because they nobody took them seriously right I mean for the most part for good reason but yeah. 
we've uh, kind of delayed talking about it. I don't really know what more there is to say, but do we want to talk about Kendall's rap? I think I need a making of featurette on that. I want to know when he, what, who composed it, how they composed yes. it, <laughs> when Jeremy Strong started learning it, like what kind of training he had or did not have. Did they like know that he had hip hop skills and so decided to bring that in? I want to know everything about the making of this. I know I've re- I've I've uh, listened to. I think I heard a podcast interview with Adam McKay where he said that. Um, uh, Sarah Snoot can rap the entirety of Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, uh, Jeremy Strong's, uh, the flow, you know, not bad. Um, it's if not I can bad. say that. It's not, ba- it's not uh, bad. He's no Lil Timmy Tim. <laughs> I did yeah, appreciate I- that there were like 30 white TV critics on my feed going like, yeah, Kendall's bars, not bad. Pretty good. Um, <laughs> and the reaction shots, I mean, were great. You've got like, Frank, um, Carl, Hugo. Yeah, um, my my personal favorite is Frank and Carl looking absolutely horrified while Hugo is like rapping along right next to <laughs> Is them. he rapping along? It's funny, I didn't notice. <laughs> and then like up on the balcony you got Sid, Jerry, Carolina looking horrified. Um yeah, I wish I wish we had a Sid Tom um exchange this episode. It was like one thing I missed. Um, and have been missing but yeah the reactions were hilarious and and like in that exact moment when they show Shiv with like her phone and she's laughing I mean it just completely coincided with like I think where everybody was at that point like the way she's laughing um and like uh right before he starts asking the audience to start filling in the the OGs and my, my husband was like you need to stop he needs to stop he needs to stop and then he hands the mic to roman and roman's like you need to stop right now <laughs> like just a very very true and um believable um scene and um you know i i <laughs> i was definitely like laughing and, and very uncomfortable but I it's it was, one of those um, one of those scenes that seems like reverse engineered to generate gifs um, right but uh, but they do a really good job of it, so I'm not really mad at it. It land it landed really well because it was like just good enough that because you know Kendall spent a lot of time on it and he has this sort of like delusional confidence in this episode, um, you know. So but without like, you know, getting to the point where something, um, <laughs> that we couldn't mock, um, very very openly and clearly because it was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> The thing I really love about the way that scene starts is that, like, you kind of slowly realize what's about to happen, and there's, like, this anticipation and dread um, as your, like, eyes widen, and then Ken turns and goes, you know, my boy Squiggle cooked this up, and I just burst out laughing. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Squiggle is one of those perfect details, like, the fly guys that is just going to be in my head for the rest of my life. This guy that he just, like, yeah calls up to help him make these bars i would love to see the scenes of like all these the people in the studio i'm sure he like did a practice recording um probably like recorded it for for himself or you know personal release or something um all these like yes men just telling him how good it is and him like really like you know manically going over each line and and (laughs) taking it very seriously um, you could totally see it just um, was yeah, this, so so well executed. 
Yeah, this is the this is the B side of um, Misbehaven from the Righteous Gemstones. <laughs> oh my god, I know they gave us as a single HBO. You gave us so much in, in just one week. The um, song of the summer. <laughs> a little, little song. too late. Yeah, a uh, little bit spooky. Each of them, so you know, fair game for spooky season. I do want to mention one thing that I noticed that's a small detail, but it kind of does speak to what Alex was just talking about, about, you know, who's allowed to be in the room and, and whose presence is recognized or not. And this is about Colin. Um, and I know that Colin is not a character who gets many lines. Um, when he does get them, they are quite devastating um, because they usually are just the delivery of horrible news. Um you know, particularly with Ken and um, the accident. And, but he is everywhere. And the attention to detail that Succession has, and as I rewatch of Colin literally being everywhere where Logan is, opening doors, um, you know, in the background of the scene with Ewan and, um, and him at the, at the School of Journalism outside or whatever. Um, he's everywhere. And there's a moment in this episode where I was watching and I watched with closed captioning where um, Colin does have a line where it's just like it's just a one word thing and he's listed as man and I was like that is such erasure like Colin is um well literally like such uh um is like the number one guy uh, in Logan's life like literally like he, he protects him he's his bodyguard he's his handler you know he takes care of his dirty work um I, you know I wonder about the character of Colin I know you know there's no chance that we're gonna get much detail there but it's just it's such um I think such an important um you know I, detail that the show pays attention to um that he is always there his presence um and well, I think because I th th somebody like Logan Roy like absolutely has somebody like that protecting him and around him at all times. Yeah, I think Colin is probably more powerful as like a symbol than he really is as a character. Um, right. You know, there we've had some scenes of dialogue with Colin where you know I love the way the actor plays him, which is just this perfectly unremarkable affectless goon which is almost more creepy than if he had like some exactly, obvious yeah. that if he was wearing like an eye patch or had like a weird accent you wonder like what his life is like at home you know i, I mean i yeah. do but yeah but just um, talking of the morbidity of this episode the right. degree to which colin is always there and has like changed into a tux which is like seeing a dog walk on its hind legs <laughs> um it's like he's like a vulture you know he's like it's just this this he's sign always of always in the background he's, yeah yeah he's this sign of portent like it, it speaks like very directly to the state of the world that colin is constantly at his master's side um right. you know it's uh it's it's not it's not good. It's not a good look. Yeah. So I I didn't appreciate the erasure. Colin is not man. Colin plays a very important role in this show, um, <laughs> if only just to create, um, you know, sort of the true um, picture of what somebody like Logan Roy um, sees and experiences in his day to day life. There is always a Colin there. I just wanted to mention the uh, my favorite line in Kendall's rap, uh, where he says, "I've been through hell, but since I stand, Dad, I'm alive and well." Um, like uh, like Jesus Christ, who also stand as Father. Um, I mean, it's a great line, but it's also it's also true. That's <laughs> very it's very direct. Yeah, it's like the it's 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 like the Will Smith end credits rap, where he just describes the plot of the movie. 
you know? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, between, like, in the video, he even says, you know, I've been through hard times. Um, in the rap, he's been through hard times. The way he sort of has, like, this giddy smile on his face when he's talking with Jennifer about all the things his dad has done. Um, yeah. Uh, I think, you know, like I said, by the end, um, he realizes that, that kind of um, devotion in light of everything that Logan has done to him and, um, you know, how um, the last few months have unfolded, uh, I think it's a really, like, dark, disturbing realization for Ken once he's um, sort of um, come down from his, you know, sex and, and uh, hip-hop pie of the episode. It's like the name of a VH1 special. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I know we're running a bit long. Um, I did want to briefly do like a formalism corner and talk about the uh, the scene of all the siblings together where they all tell off Shiv, um, which was really striking to me in the way that it's uh, shot a lot like um, season one was, where all of a sudden we've got a return to the swinging camera and the snap zooms. Um, but I thought uh, better a bit somehow than those than those season one scenes part of it is that you know you've got this very clearly uh um staged space um the scene moves very quickly um the characters are all responding to each other and the actors are playing off each other really well and uh there's a degree to which like the editing matches you know the movement where you know roman does his dumb fart jokes etc and it comes back to that so the the scene's actually edited really nicely i just thought that was interesting that after um last week's totally locked down camera we were all of a sudden back in season one territory with a very uh kind of restless eye in that scene yeah i was glad to see it it was really well done yeah it seemed sharper than season one but still with that same impact for sure yeah yeah, you got a good. S well, and that makes sense just with the with the content of the episode because in a way this is sort of like episode one rebooted. Mm, yeah. Yeah, in yeah, exactly. the ways that you were talking about with Lear before, absolutely. The the new pilot, the repilot. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's, yeah, it's a good scene. It's well directed. It uh, it's um. I think just really evokes the relationship between those siblings really well in a way that, you know, they're not always together, the four of them. They're usually splintered off into pairs or into threes. Connor's not always there. Um, but you really got a good sense of the siblings together, even as they were talking about things that were germane to the plot, you know. They're being childish. They're pushing each other's buttons. Um, I thought that was it, was... it was a really good scene. Right, but always reuniting and knowing that, you know, no matter how much they tell each other to fuck off, you know, they'll be at dad's next event all together or whatever, um, you know, brings yeah. them into, into dad's orbit again because, you know, that's that's where they all have, have decided to uh, position themselves. Well, I think there's also something interesting about the way Shiv kind of changes how she talks when she's around her siblings. There's something a bit more um, combative and abrasive and vulgar in how she talks almost like she's trying to fit into a boys club that she knows she's not part right. of and i think that's an interesting contrast to what you were saying um about roman earlier that you know roman's more comfortable with um with women and you get the sense that shiv i don't know if she's more comfortable with men but she, it's very important to her that she's accepted by absolutely men. yeah and i think the lack of female friendships that she has and again not that any of them really have real friends but 
um, to, to not have any real female friendships at that age and um, her interactions generally with Marsha, uh, with Rhea shows that, yeah, I think she has a, a distrust of women. Um, you know, we can see very clearly that her mom, um, you know, definitely created um, a lot of that um, mistrust and and general, um, you know, sort of aversion of, of closeness and particularly when it comes to um, to female closeness. Yeah, she just she didn't have a great track record with the uh, significant others in her dad's life. Oh yeah, so just a question about, I was just thinking there's two costume things in this episode that stood out to me, and I just thought I'd throw it out to you what you if you had any thoughts on it. <laughs> so the first is, I think this is the second week that Roman has not shaved? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like I it. I can't say I noticed. Um, I'm just wondering if that's something to do with the fallout from the slap that like now he's not shaving i think so i think it also yeah like like we were talking about when he's doing the recording and he's almost like um you know contriving the deadpan um yeah i think there's something activated in him that's sort of like and when he comes back from that he's like wow i said i love you to dad 10 times that's like double my you know lifetime count (laughs) um you know i think yeah i think he's still hurting from that and i think um you know maybe not looking as a um you know business uh savvy in terms of his appearance and letting himself uh you know grow a little beard um you know it might be some sort of like very unconscious um you know rebellious act a small one but you know he's not really allowed very many large ones so and then I guess the other thing that stood out to me was Shiv's wearing a lot of backless clothing, including like a backless, backless turtleneck. <laughs> the backless turtleneck like... was insane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I think she's... <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's it's just like, it's, it's like, you know, when you see um, like those cold shoulder sweaters and you're just like, what is the utility of this garment? This is just like that amped up. To 11. Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of like <laughs> the like mullet. Bro- yeah, it just broke my party part party in the back and business in the front. Like Shiv is trying to project, <laughs> like <laughs> she <laughs> that she's like that she needs to be taken seriously. But I think she's upping her, um, you know, her style game a little bit and and playing a little bit into her sex appeal, um, because obviously that's something that um, works. It's easy. And, um, you know, I think there's um, an inherent sexual aspect to Shiv's um, power and um, the way she perceives her power and the way she projects her power. So um, I think sort of maybe some of that, you know, more revealing type of uh, clothing and having it be her back and not necessarily cleavage, um, you know, it's a little bit more, um, you know, uh, cunning and, and strategic which she would like us to you know believe that she is i guess i certainly have a lot of questions about what kind of undergarment she's wearing I th- and, like, yeah i was, with the I was wondering about that too <laughs> yeah um but i guess she's also like when she's meeting there at the dad's house um her suit is also a bit like out there it's colorful where she normally wears pretty 
Um, yeah, they 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 were like conservative some like patterns, some very Anglo-looking patterns um, on yeah, her suit. Which, yeah, yeah, yeah. They've definitely um, transformed Shiv's style this season for sure. Uh, I know we'll have a future guest who can talk about that a little bit, but um, yeah, it's definitely something to see that she looks, um, you know, so much sort of older and and put together in this season when season one ostensibly all those events occurred you know not too long ago in in the succession timeline mm-hmm. um we've kind of jumped around a lot this episode but um you know closing thoughts from anybody on this episode what's next for our heroes is there anything we didn't <laughs> get to Oh boy. We didn't get to Edward I in mean, the in the pub yeah. with what, what uh was... with Roman. And we also didn't talk about Ken's Brown. Oh my uh, god. The Emmys. Oh my god, that was driving me crazy. I was like I saw that I was like, no way. Um yeah, just uh where does the performance end? Where does it begin? You know. <laughs> yeah, Roman has a, a little um homoerotic moment with edward when he's like sniffing him at the bar um you know again roman psychosexuality contains you know just just endless fodder um and then there was also a funny line in that bar scene when um edward's saying that he has you know 360 latitude to make decisions and work on behalf of his father (laughs) roman's like yeah me too totally (laughs) can't believe how similar we are yeah Yeah, it's just uh, yeah, it's a fail son bromance, um, but it's it increasingly looks like that's going to be their life raft that they're going to have to get in deep with Edward and his father, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, create that propaganda news network for them. Which you know it's it's old hat, um, but maybe maybe a degree removed from what they're currently involved in. Did Connor get anything for his father? Is he the only one that didn't give him the gift? He he gave him an incredible investment opportunity. Right. <laughs> oh right, of course. Right, Roman's gift was the wrong team. Right. 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 the wrong football and club, and he's rat. like, "Are you sure? Are you sure that's not the team you support?" <laughs> it's like I sympathize with Roman because who can tell the names of these clubs apart? I mean, come on. Hearts yeah, I also thought for a moment maybe like he was right, and Logan doesn't remember because. Again, this episode was so weird yeah. with with Logan's memories and uh, the way it handled that. So, and Roman seems pretty sure that it was it was the hearts or whatever, and not the hibs. But again, you know, we'll probably never know. Also, these kids are so obsessed with their right. father. You'd be <laughs> you think that they could win any trivial pursuit, you know, question about their father's life. Yeah, so. and Carl going. If it's any consolation, I'm terrible at gift giving. <laughs> that I always get up. the wrong thing. <laughs> I love the way they make him just the ultimate sad set. Carl's just so depressing. Yeah, but something about David uh, Rash, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last name, he's just so fit for that kind of role. It's perfect. It reminds me in Sad Sag Wasp Trap when he was like, you showed those cystic fibrosis fuckheads. I don't know. Something something about his acting is uh, just uh, really great for, for a you know, corporate suit like that in Logan's Orbit. 
I guess structurally the interesting thing about this episode is that they're sort of resetting up who's going to be in charge. So it's interesting, like, where are we going for the rest of the season and how is it going to set up next season is an interesting question that this is where it's happening. Yeah. You know, that they didn't make this. This could just have easily been the final episode of the season. We're announcing Rhea and there's this... Uh, what is it? The death. The death pit. What do they? Death call it? pit. The death pit coming after her. But instead, we're getting this like two episodes before the end of the season. So there must be things that are gonna happen to set up for whatever happens next. Yeah, we're going to DC next week. It seems for an inquiry, which will be a, a sequel of sorts to the inquiry episodes in both the thick of it and in Veep which both did um, episodes that sort of took place entirely in a con- at a congressional or a parliamentary hearing. Um, Greg's going to be the room meet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We oh really need to just God. do a special episode on In the Loop um, while we're on hiatus. Yeah, you get into it for sure. Yeah, and we get the return of Gil um, at the hearings, so that should be interesting. Gil is, Gil is sliding in the polls. His campaign is collapsing. <laughs> he should. He's down to. He's Drop down to 18%. out. 18%. Drop out, Gil. That's funny. Yeah, who's the uh, who's the Elizabeth Warren counterpart? Maybe we'll meet her. We'll see. I know. And then Connor's got to get his uh, campaign back up, but clearly he's having some funding issues for. Uh... Yeah, they're really. <laughs> <laughs> They're really milking this, That's and it's at the expense of the timeline. I have no idea what time of year it's supposed to be, what year yeah. it is. They're just in an they endless fi- they presidential fi- They campaign. filmed this in June. Um, I think it's supposed to probably be, you know, midsummer at this point, perhaps late summer. Um, mm. So, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, it's hard to know. They wear a lot of wool. Yeah. They're <laughs> we mentioned that last but not week, a lot I of think. Coats. Yeah, they're just... They're, they're sort of... Uh, always dressed for like a you know 55 degree day they just they just carry a chill in the air with them everywhere they go (laughs) maybe that's what they call logan (laughs) hurricane logan winter storm logan uh well all right um we should probably bring this to a close um alex it was an absolute pleasure to have you on i'm so glad we got to chat about this Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you so much. It was awesome. (laughs) I said awesome twice. (laughs) Oh, boy. Now I don't know how to do (laughs) Alex is also in theater. All right, folks. um, We'll be back uh, next week uh, to cover episode nine, and we'll be with you uh, wherever there's new succession. Uh, So until then, uh, take care. Bye-bye. So kick it! critters that's true it's cruel to see but he's gonna be about animal cruelty he's a man he's a treasure trove but tell me what is your name i'm mc rose that's right he can't be beat because he's so white from his head to his feet but he will rap it when you give him a chance look at him move doing a rapping dance that's true he's a dancing resident he is the sidekick to the president He's going way above. Tell me, what is your name? MC Rose. That's true. He's crossing his arms. He's rapping and a chilling and a showing his charms. 
he will do it or without fail. Get out his gun cause he's shooting quail. This man will never stop. Look at him jumping up and down ready to hop. He's got so much to prove. And tell me you never saw this man move. Doing the dance, the car roll dance. Doing the dance, the car roll dance. Dancing and talking and dancing and talking and dancing and talking and dancing and talking. Now it's time for a little shock with the Colin over there doing the old beatbox. Tell me what is your name? Empty Road. 